namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang namang sanghang namasami well i hope you've all had some time perhaps in a few moments of stillness in the various activities of the day just to take in some of the feeling and the meaning of uh, such an occasion and in a way that the sanctuary, the monastery itself is a kind of ongoing occasion or a place where occasions get generated or take root I think what we all experience <coughs> on times in our lives is whether we uh, meditate or don't meditate or to the degree to which we go within ourselves is uh, can be a very lonely experience and uh, there's times when suddenly the world of time and place seems to fall away and you're very sick or somebody dies and you recognize or you're in some crisis or another you recognize well you feel pretty lonely here very much you've got to do it yourself you've got to work it out for yourself and uh, sometimes it's kind of invigorating sometimes it feels like a, a lot yeah. uh, and then when, when you get an occasion like this you recognize yeah but it's also about uh, a part of something everybody's here because they're part of something we may one one very true sense be all alone with our birth, our aging and death and the intimacy of what we feel. Another level we're we're not separate. We're distinct but not separate. Uh, and these occasions particularly bear that out because you know, how did this come around? There's no uh, over years comes around through people begin to recognize the truths of separation, loss, aging, death, suffering, stress, you know. Hardly a great uh, rallying cry, is it, to bring people together. <laughs> Let's go and suffer together. <laughs> but uh, the predicament shared is the predicament substantially reduced or amazingly reduced because in the in the larger sense of, of the shared sense of belonging to part of something much larger, we also recognize we have a much larger sense of ourselves as well. You know, there's, you know, so each of us in a way can feel quite alone in our bodies, in our feelings, in our perceptions, in our thoughts. And yet part of the, the invitation of Buddhist practice is to recognize, you know, there's, there's a bigger sense of what, of what you're part of than even the stuff that really jabs at you and uh, challenges you and uh, you know, weighs on you and excites you and threatens you and all the stuff where all the moving is you're mar- you're, there's also something much bigger than that and you begin to sense that once your mind in a way in what these, uh, learns to, to uh, change direction or learn to see the larger sense and in, in community that's one of the uh, big advantages of it in one way, a community was just a number of fragments grinding up against each other, trying
trying to form some pattern is always a big problem because you've always got to try and fit how all these bits and pieces fit together. But when every individual recognises the larger sense and fit into that, we, we, you know, we, we find a sense settling into the larger thing. And the larger thing is about truth, it's about honesty, it's about generosity, it's about um, present moment awareness, <coughs> and it's about deathlessness. And the Buddha invited us to acknowledge this larger sense. You could say in some ways, and when you meditate, it's, it's, uh, you can recognize that quality of that which is able to witness or be with the turbulence and the movements of the body and the mind. Yeah. When you get a, a whole a group of people, it's some kind of sense of purpose to it, you know, which, which gathers together, it doesn't exactly override, but it, it becomes the priority above the individual ones. It's not even a matter of the individuals even agreeing, but all relating to something that's bigger than, than themselves individually. And we'll have to find our way with that. Find our way to feeling that we, we connect to that directly. It's not just an idea, it's not just a cult or an um, ideology we're following, but it's actually a, a very strong intuition and feeling in the heart. It's safe, it's trustworthy. Somebody was saying to me today, just coming here, how good to be with so many people and just feel completely safe. You know, unthreatened, no pressure, no competitions, no, uh, you know, everything warm, friendly, food offered, uh, open place, come when you like, go when you like, you know, that feeling, just how, how lovely that is. <coughs> this is all has arisen through recognizing the larger sense. It's that which any of us is to cooperate. And it's uh, this is a it continues about cooperation, and I say that quite stressing it quite deliberately. Co and operate. It's about a sense of belonging to something uh, that, in a way, is uh, shared and doesn't go anywhere. It's also about operating, about actually doing something finite and specific that does go somewhere. You know, you get the directive, actual, specific functional sense within a larger sense of what we belong to. And uh, this has been, you know, just looking at it, you have the, the spread of the, the assembly. And I think the Buddha would have allowed himself a small smile to see this little gathering here of uh, lay men, lay women, and nuns, monks uh, from Asia, a Korean Monk, Vietnamese monk, Cambodian nun, and of course the uh, lay people, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, those are the ones I particularly noticed, maybe others, <coughs> Burmese, Americans, Australians, even South Africa, yeah. <laughs> even South Africa, the lost continent, <laughs> and Europe, not to mention poor old Europe. <laughs> so, you know, it's not bad, is it? <laughs> The fourfold assembly and how, how many continents? That's five continents, <laughs> all gathered together here, uh, and just be, for their own free will. You know, I want to be here, I want to be part of this. And it's not about being English or or 
Sri Lankan or Thai or African. <laughs> it's about something uh, more than that, transnational, transcultural. And uh, the fourfold assembly. So I think it's very important to recognize the Buddha felt his dispensation was not really complete. He didn't feel satisfied. Uh, he didn't feel it was time to pass into Nibbana until he had the fourfold assembly established. And, you know, the lay men, lay women, bhikkhus and nuns. And, uh, you know, sometimes people think we're doing something new in having a nun's order. It's actually not doing anything new, really. It's just trying to uh, say, where have you been for the last thousand years? <laughs> you know, please, welcome back. <laughs> you know, this, this was the original model, the original setup, and, the, you know, working with the technical difficulties of lineages and so forth, but this is very much the idea to cover all the bases. So you get a sense of the breadth of that. And that means uh, different, you know, psychologies, different energies, different persuasions within that. But uh, that's, the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the largeness of the space. It's not to be carved up into little bits and pieces, but it's the largeness of that is the, is the spread of the Buddha's sasana or dispensation. And it means a lot of cooperation, doesn't it? Differences, distinctions, mean cooperation. <coughs> and uh, I think what we tend to find in the world is, is well, not, not universally, but to a large extent, you have domination. Domination models. You know, like political domination, economic domination whereby one element has power and pulls everything else together. It can be benevolent domination, <laughs> good-natured, good-intentioned domination, you know, sort of patronizing or patronage, uh, or it can be malevolent or a bit of both or mixed. Um, but it's that kind of model. In a way, that's simplest, in a way. You know... <coughs> The individual shut up. This is what we're doing. <laughs> we get things done, and that's that can be often the the uh, the argument behind it. You know, just get the strong leader and follow it because it's simplest. Don't listen to all these different ideas and views. You know, just get down to it, and get on with it, and uh, uh, get the, the single strong leader or the strong group to dominate everybody else. So. Uh, and you can see how um, you get things done that way. <coughs> I think, as I said, you know, Mussolini got the trains to run on time. <laughs> and it was, it was really worth it. <laughs> it's really valuable to get the, how valuable it was to have the trains run on time. <laughs> and you get that the, the way uh, our tendency to, to relate to much more than each other, even on a political level, but on the planet. You need to dominate the planet. That is, you bash things down and carve things up and blow things up and hack things up and spray things to death and and so forth and burn things down and uh, you get what you can out of it and uh, so yeah well this way we get increased this and that and the other and we don't seem to recognize uh, you know the, the the effects of domination both as an attitude and a, and a, and a, pragma, and a practical reality 
are extremely destructive. <coughs> you know, you can't, after a while, you dominate something to, to death, which is what so often happens on the uh, environmental level. Yeah, you know, you, so we are top dog, we are top species now, but we've more or less wiped everything else out. <laughs> do, you, do you want to live on a, on a dead planet, you know? Because eventually, the results are, well, when it comes down to it, where are you going to get your food and water from if you mess this up? Where are you going to get your air from if you mess this up? You know, you dominate something. But you're cla- one claims a power one doesn't really have. We, we're granted a certain power, you know, by life force itself. And we can use that to our advantage. We can also abuse it, whereupon you, you, you don't recognize that where that power has come from, that where you've been given that power, that kind of quality of, of strength and intelligence and sustenance and nourishment. You, you have a mother here, and uh, you come out of something. You can't just uh, squeeze it dry. <coughs> no, so, you know, when you look at this in planetary terms, it becomes uh, strikingly obvious to some. Because the, the difficulty is that, of course, if we don't dominate, you think, well, you know, what do you do? Just sit around in, in mud huts or something. And, uh, you know, that's the sense of it. There's no direction. But it's a matter of recognizing where, where do all the directions come from and where do they go to. And they're coming from places of, uh, of uh, narrow-mindedness or selfishness. And when they're moved by along with abuse and ignorance, they're always going to end in destruction and uh, eventual depletion. And that occurs both you know, externally and internally. We can do the same things to ourselves, can't we, with our own bodies. You can run yourself that bit harder to get the extra results. You can run yourself, you can work that little bit harder to get the, the extra, and so forth. When, when does it eventually, things start to wear out? You know? When do things start to break down and you can't actually, you realize you're, you're relying on something that's, um, that's you've been born with, supported you, and uh, you've got to take care of it. It's not always about going places. Part of it's about being present, and uh, nourishing it and looking after it. In a way, that has to be part of our direction. And I think in these, uh, what one begins to learn in, in, in cultivation is that the direction of, of just looking after and sharing and caring is at least as satisfying a direction as any other. You know, one gets a, a, great, a greater sense, if not a greater sense of happiness out of generosity and kindness as we do out of status and uh, achievements of, you know. and also the, there's, there's not really a, a limitation on generosity and kindness <coughs> you know being able to offer flowers to a Buddha is, is you know help out in a katina ceremony put a spoon of rice in a bowl 
So that's where we get the sense of, you know, there is a direction, but also the direction has got, uh, is checked. It's, well, what, what are we, you know, what's the actual results of this? And, and where do our directives come from? If they're coming without reference to the larger sense of what we belong to, then it gets, it gets risky, it gets dangerous. Yeah. If the only reference we have is to what happens inside the, the body and the feelings and the attitudes and the psychologies and so forth, then um, without reference to something larger, uh, then it becomes, becomes uh, affected by self-interest, manipulations, and then this kind of blinkered perceptions of what's, what's in it for me, what's in it for my group, or my bunch, or, you know, my tribe, or, you know, uh, and that means the others can go to the wall. <coughs> Very often, you know, and we find this with meditation too, when you practice it and med- practice meditation, there's always the possibility for going somewhere, you think, you know, well, to what do we aim for? Like peace, concentration, quietness, stillness, you know, joy, whatever. And we we moved. We look for that particular result. And uh, yeah, fine. You know, this is what the Buddha is saying. The results are. But in order to bring that around, first of all, you have to enter into a place of cooperation. That is, acknowledge where where we are in our bodies, where we are in our energies, you know, uh, where we are uh, with our minds. Just be present with those. So this is the, almost the preliminaries of meditation, just this place of entering refuge, where um, you don't have to be anything apart from present, with the feeling, the body, the breathing, the silence, the thoughts in the mind, the worries, the doubts. Just actually finding a place where they can, they can settle <coughs> and... Um, just not be pushed around. And this is the, if you like, the beginning of meditation, or the beginning um, movements of meditation, or gestures, of, like the overtures, which are so important. Because if we move from uh, places and attitudes in our lives when we are going ahead and doing a lot of things, and there's a certain amount of pressure, and you take that very psychology into meditation where there's another lot of things you've got to get going and achieve uh, and, and realize, uh, and they're even more refined, um, then essentially I don't think you're going to do it because you never got quite enough time to do it. We haven't quite the energy to do it. Or there's something else happening that you should do, it's more important. Or there's a really interesting program on telly that only going to happen once, so you better see that, and you can meditate any old time. <laughs> or maybe when I feel a bit healthier, I'll meditate. Or when I'm a bit older, I'll meditate. Yeah. Got yeah. So I remember seeing this this cartoon strip of um, a few years ago, which was <laughs> very firm point in it. The first the first captain's cartoon strip was a little baby in a cot, and it's saying, too young to, much too young to meditate. <laughs> and it's got a couple of kids running around, playing, skipping rope. It says, still too young to meditate. 
and then it's got a guy on a motorbike, you know, obviously a teenager, too wild to meditate. <laughs> and then with a girlfriend, too much in love to meditate. <laughs> and then uh, uh, picking up a job, too busy to meditate. And then getting older, too tired to meditate. And then really up, sitting there, old, shivering with the blankets around her, much too old to meditate. Then a gravestone, too late to meditate. <laughs> <laughs> But next life, because <laughs> what, what is it, you know, meditate means, oh, another hurdle to jump over, you know, <laughs> even more refined, you know, tightrope to walk up, down on, oh, I don't want to do that, you know. But finding, you know, the, the place of refuge, it's, it's a, I think it's so important, uh, and it probably is the thing that we most... Uh, need to establish, I think, in, in a Western society, because we, are, we tend to be emphatically directional. You know, whether we're good at it or not, we believe in directions and progress and things of that nature. And what you find in a, in a more traditional Buddhist, Buddhist environment, such as in Asian countries, you just go and take refuge, sit there, you know, make puja, feel good, go home again. <laughs> Yeah. which could be a lack of direction, but also, I think, for in, it's not for me to judge, but in this particular situation, I think it's really helpful to say, is it all right just to come, who you are, how you are, you know, ragged, fed up, tired, old, sick, and just feel safe, you know, that right now there's a bigger sense that you can sit within uh, that's not putting any pressure on you, uh, like an attentive space, uh, and where you can just feel how you're feeling um, and um, not uh, worry about it, judge it or bicker with yourself or beat yourself up about it or whinge, you know. And you can just let, let the feelings be felt and allow things to settle. So very often, you know, big problems with, as if we are well, the thinking mind buzzes away all the time so, uh, stop thinking, stop thinking, stop thinking. How do I stop thinking? I'm thinking about stopping thinking. How do I stop thinking about stopping? There must be something I can read to tell me how to think about stop thinking. I'll just, just forget it. Right, forget it. I forgot. What am I supposed to forget? I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> and so it goes. <laughs> ramble, ramble, ramble. And you know, so why, do, why don't you stop thinking? Because your mind hasn't got anywhere to sit down in. <laughs> it's used to running round all day long. You haven't actually prepared it a seat to say, well, look, you can sit down here. You know, it's like when we, uh, <coughs> when you get a, a, a new cat, a cat has to kind of sniff out the whole place, move around the house, restlessly up and down, it finally finds a place, oh, okay, I'll, no, no, sit down. And it's rather like that with the thinking mind. You've got to move around, but keep encouraging it, saying, yeah, well, you can sit here. And where do you sit? Where does your mind sit? It has to sit inside your body. Yeah. And for most of us, very often what occurs in our lives is our, our minds get so busy, they go out of our bodies. You know, they're actually out in this kind of hyper space of virtual reality of the future and Friday and what's happening to aunt so-and-so and what should be done by yesterday and there's three other things going. There's no, they can't get inside the body anymore. There's no room in there for, all, for the rest of the world. 
So you have to go out into this kind of void space outside your body where you can think and juggle options. So you don't really really recognize much what's going on there. And so when you try to stop it, we go out outside the body to stop it. We think about it. And mostly, (coughs) refuge practice is about actually bringing it all back home. Speaking to your thoughts, finding, giving a place to sit down, feeling welcome. Uh, Feeling the thinking, feeling the energy of thinking, feeling how it affects your body. Breathing in, breathing out, listening to the silences in between the thoughts. Till the mind recognizes it's got a place that's not being chivied and, and, and snapped at, it's got a place to sit down in. You cooperate with it. You don't dominate it, you cooperate with it. You give it somewhere where it can find enough room to move, then it sits down. <coughs> and this is, a, a, I think, a, a quite transformative. Because in, in the state of stress, then uh, we can get quite violent with ourselves, angry with ourselves, miserable with ourselves, fed up with ourselves, uh, don't want to be with ourselves, you know, which is the, well, it's often, don't want to be with myself, go out to something else. To be with yourself, you have to develop uh, a lot of spacious generosity to cooperate. Now, very often we, in coming out of the, these kind of preliminary levels of stress, it's like changing gear from one mode to the other. It's, it's useful to things, use things like holding space or generating a space where things can just be the way they are. It gets to be a, a, you know, a bit of a, uh, a cliche in its own right. <coughs> So I think it was yesterday we were, we were trying to operate the computer to get the um, Katina chanting uh, thing printed out, which is on the computer. The computer was having a bad day. Yeah. What would you feel like if six different people with grubby fingers kept sticking their mitts on your buttons? <laughs> I mean, one is all right. When it's six different people, most of them don't know what they're doing. So this computer was in a... It had all kinds of files loaded up on it. I think it hadn't properly been closed down, so it just it just went into spasms. This thing, and it wasn't going to do anything for anybody, no matter what. It just locked completely. <laughs> and we could, wouldn't even, could it wouldn't even it wouldn't even switch off. You know, <laughs> I'm not, not going to go away. I'm not going to shut down. <laughs> I'm not going to operate either. <laughs> so we looked at it. And we tried a few things, and it wasn't going to happy. And we just looked at this thing. And I was better with Casper and myself, and we started just playing. So I stroked the screen and told it we loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and how nice, because it was the only computer in Sussex that had an image of Ajahn Sumaitu on it, and how privileged it was. <laughs> and not, not to hurry, you know. <laughs> Take your time, and then Kasu was saying, "We're just here holding the space for you, <laughs> and express what you need to express." And, <laughs> and suddenly, the thing kind of spasmed, and about fifteen different files shot up on the screen and span through, and it just came back into life again. <laughs> 
I thought, hey, that was supposed to be a joke. <laughs> That's not supposed to work. <laughs> Maybe it's true. You know, too, too much directive and not enough uh, uh, re- receiving. You know, empathy and receiving. The thing had gone into directive overload. And, so it was, a, it was an amazing kind of paradigm. And I thought, hey. <laughs> it was not... Maybe if it works for computers, it might work for humans too. (laughs) But of course, uh, we we, we can get into the idea that we just sort of sit and uh, empathize and receive things and don't do anything about it. So it becomes a kind of quietist um, autocracy. Uh, as if there's no directions, nothing to be done. Everything is just, well, sit here and share the pain. <laughs> yeah. But it is very much a, a, a mixture. Hmm. So this very container itself is, you know, there's the principle of the sharing and the sense of the openness. But yeah, there's been a tremendous amount of, of specific details etched in and work done, just as it is, is the manner of the monastery. In some ways it's timeless, spacious, it doesn't belong to anybody. <coughs> Another time, it's, you know, Venerable Narado out there trying to fix the boiler, <laughs> making phone calls all day, or it's, you know, Sam Ford negotiating with people, or it's one of the sisters crawling around in a roof, or... Somebody, you know, digging the gardens or the forest there or looking at the sewage pit or something of that nature. So it's full of, we don't just sit there and share the space around the, around the, around the sewage pit. <laughs> Somebody gets out there and, and plums the thing, you know. And yet you try to, to kind of hold all this stuff within an uh, ability to say, well, you know, you just remember... Uh, whatever you do, uh, there's something bigger mm. than this. At the end of the day, this is not this is not the purpose of it. This is just something that helps to facilitate it. It's not the, it's not the heart of it. It's the it's the thing that keeps it going. And then our offerings become action. Uh, our actions become offerings rather than duties, rather than things we're kind of lumbered with. They become feeling well. You know, we've got the space. Um, I'm, st- I'm happy where I am, I'm fine where I am. What I'd like to do is I'd like to bring forth something. Mm. I feel like, you know, I'd like to move into direction. Moving to direction gives me some, some strengthens me. Mm. Gives me some edges. Uh, gives me things that challenge me. Gives me things I kind of strengthen myself against. Uh, makes me more on the point. Uh, sharpens my mindfulness, sharpens my attention. It, it's a development rather than a, a burden to my practice. It's actually something that focuses, sharpens, and gives specific meaning to my practice. I think that's very important to recognize the value of direction, you know, when it's not uh, overriding uh, the, the receptive or the empathic or the co- or space. So then you get a sense of cooperation. <coughs> Recently, I, uh, this year, I had the good fortune to 
go on a pilgrimage in Tibet, um, which struck me as having a lot of this principle in it, because in some ways it's a, it's a, uh, a very much a cooperative uh, venture. There's a group of us. Thing is sponsored by uh, people. People offer the the tickets, the funds, and so forth to make this happen, and we do it on other people's behalf. So you, the very you, know, you try to gather up the intentions and the aspirations and the memories and the thoughts of the people who won't be physically coming and bring that along. So on their behalf, so where you're kind of carrying a much larger sense. Otherwise, it's just a holiday or a trek because it's about taking the larger sense and giving a direction which is quite unambiguous. That is, the direction is not really about going anywhere particular. It's just about, because all you do is just walking around a mountain. You know, there's no, you're not kind of going to achieve anything or make anything or, you know, you just basically walk around a circle (laughs) and get back to where you started from. Uh, But uh, because the terrain is very challenging... You know, there's, there's not some uh, less than half the oxygen you normally get at sea level. It's it's a uh, it's it's quite a uh, task. Body tires so easily. You feel you headache all the time. You're very nauseous most of the time. Uh, you feel like you're running up a flight of stairs when you're actually just standing still. It's that's that's it's like that. You know, you're just standing somewhere <sighs> before you even move. <laughs> you know. Uh, Getting into get lying down at night is an effort. You know, actually get the body to descend from the hor- the vertical to the horizontal and get its boots off. Sometimes you don't even bother to get your clothes off. It's just too much. You just kind of lie down in a tent or something. Um, eating is difficult. So after a while, you get difficult to eat anything because you just can't get the energy together to, to do the process of eating, you know, which you think would be the most obvious thing to do, and yet. Eating takes energy. Yeah. And so in that, I think one begins very much to learn how to, you can't push the body around. Uh, but it's not about just sitting there either. It's about asking your body, you know, give me a hint, can we move, what speed, mm-hmm. learning how it can operate, learning how to, when it's time to stop, learning how to you know, keep it going. I found that incredibly useful. Because the mind, so, oh, let's get on, you know. <coughs> let's get going. Let's get, let's get there. No, it's, it's not, you know, we've got, to, it's got, got to get there by such and such a time. body doesn't know that. doesn't work like that. <laughs> you know, I can only go this fast. If you push me any faster, I'm going to collapse. <laughs> and that, that uh, so, uh, I think a few of us did collapse, or just because you, you, you think you can do it and you can't, you just got to conk out. Uh, and there's something very um, humbling about that, but also very beautiful. Because <coughs> I I've, personally I found that in, in walking for these four or five days around the mountain, then we did another four or five days around a lake nearby. Um, it's a sense of the mind becomes quiet because it recognizes, hey, one of the principal things I'm supposed to be doing here is, is supervising the whole of this system. It's not about me, you know, my mind creating ideas. 
which it normally does. Oh, that'd be a good idea. Let's do that. Let's do this. You know, it's about going somewhere else or thinking of opportunities. But actually, a big part of the mind's duty is to say, well, how are you feeling now? What's going on? Um, is this right? Is this good? Is this bad? And just keep, you know, responding and listening to, to the body and working with the energies in the body. <coughs> and uh, particularly, there's a, there's a, when the, the pilgrimage route around Kailash is very poignant because it also represents uh, a life journey and when you begin uh, and this life journey is is marked by every other pilgrim who's been there so as you walk along everywhere you go there are stones and cairns and flags I mean somebody else has done this same thing for hundreds of years you know so you get the feeling of this is what we all do we all go on this journey it's called life you know, when you're in it, you don't really recognize it because you're so busy being in it. And you say, hey, we've all been on this journey. We've all been born. We all move. We always have a sense of direction, don't we? Of things we're going. We all get into events and, and difficulties and joys and visions and landscapes. We all do that, don't we? And then we get older and the visions and landscapes change. And it gets cold and you get wet and you get sick, you know. And then you die, don't you? We all we'll do this. And a lot of the time we, you know, we're in that, but we haven't. Got, we lose the larger sense of really. Just think, see, this is what this is called a life, you know. Where does it go actually? It just goes round, doesn't it? And when you come to this mountain, you there's a, there's a place where you you begin deliberately begin, as if you've just been born. That is any regrets, any doubts, any concerns you have, any feelings of not being welcomed, of having got it wrong, of whatever, you just drop it all. Just like this is now day one completely clean. And you go through uh, a a two-legged stupa. So it's like coming out of the womb. You come out of that and it's like, you know, and there's there's a land there saying welcome. A big open valley says welcome, you know, wide, and there's a river down the front, down the centre of it, and you can just walk in this wide valley, feeling innocent again. And as you go along, uh, the day progresses, <coughs> and it starts to get steeper. Uh, and this is rather like what happens in our childhood, isn't it? You know, maybe it got steep quite soon, but you know, the, the struggles and the challenges and the trying to get it right. Uh, and they're getting it wrong, getting hurt, and playing and, and crying and so on. So at the end of the first day, uh, I, I, I personally had, hadn't got into to proper measure. I was going much too fast. You know, I was walking as if I was actually, you know, a man. When really I should have, I was still at the toddler stage. You know, just to, to learn to, to actually feel into the body. So the first day I was completely exhausted, and uh, then you start to realise suddenly, well, it's great that somebody else there to put up the tent, isn't it? <laughs> There's somebody else there who takes your bag, somebody else there who, when you're lying flat on your back, just comes and gives you a cup of hot something to drink, you know. And you think, hey, this is what I've been, I've been born into this as well. It's not just the individuality of the birth predicament, it's into the communality of 
There's always somebody else, there's other people around, aren't there? When you lose it. And the blessing of that. So along with the sense of the struggle, there's also a sense of, there's always benevolence somewhere. Mm. You know, it may be a little bit, take a little bit of time for it to come around, but somewhere there's benevolence. There's pain, struggle, but that's inevitable, but there's benevolence. Uh, and that was a great help, because as I continued uh, walking the next few days, we had to do some climbing then, several thousand foot climb, which is an enormous um, struggle. And people, people would actually die on this, this climb. You, know, just the, you get altitude sickness, just, basically you just die. <laughs> And there's a place there where you consciously die. That is, you, you, you feel pretty much on the edge of it because you can't hardly breathe and, you, and your, your body gets into this kind of um, edge state. I know when you've been really ill and you find your sort of sense of your mind is separating from your body or you're not really connected anymore. Well, it's a bit like that, in this edgy state, which is emotionally very vulnerable. And it's at that particular place where there's, there's a kind of shrine of rocks and you sit there and you consciously let go of your body. That is, say, thank you, now I'm dying. Now it's the end of this, just as if you come to the end of your life. And it's a time when you begin to recollect, perhaps quite spontaneously, uh, what good fortune it's been to have been around, to have shared time. And you what came up for me, particularly, it's not anything I'd done, but the people I've been with. Yeah. Uh, that my life has been made by occasions generated through other people. The Buddha, my parents, teachers, friends, supporters. Yeah. And I suppose in some ways, I, you know, something that means being part of that. But the perception is very much of... of um, my life has been a place of being met by other people and enormous gratitude for that. <clears throat> and after the, the death, um, you get a sense of when you've, when you've let go of it all, then you're free. Yeah. And you can then just really just take one step at a time. There's what they call a bardo stage, where you, you have to climb. And it's an incredible state of elation. Because there's nothing left to lose. Uh, and uh, just doing that, and it generally, for me, it meant that like, you just keep walking as, f as far as you can go until your breath gives out, is the story. <laughs> you know, so you start walking. First of all, you're breathing uh, quite fast, and gradually your breath is taking less and less. So even as you're breathing out, your body's trying to breathe in again. You know, because you, you haven't got enough oxygen and the heartbeat is rising to its, its like trip hammers and now it's time to stop and wait and see if there'll be an opportunity to go further or whether that's the end of it. So every time, you know, it's just coming to that point of, we'll, we'll just stand here and wait. And it comes back, gradually comes back, you breathe in and breathe out and it comes back and you, okay. Now there's a chance for direction again. Now there's a chance for direction again. You walk as far as you can, till you, till you can't go any further, stop, wait, 
that helplessness and now there's a chance for direction again so it's a lovely kind of um, balance between the sense of just receiving and being vulnerable and in some way helpless and having a sense of purpose we are supposed to be going on Um, but the purpose comes is allowed out of the receptive as you, you, it's okay, you, you find yourself granted, okay, stabilized, okay to be here. Therefore, you have the permission to go on. You can't go on unless there's permission. Then, once you have permission, then you have direction. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a useful training to have those moments when, in your life, when you stop and consider, do I have, is it okay to continue? in my work, in my career? Is it, is it wholesome for me to continue? Have I actually checked in with my body, my energies, people around me, my family? Is it, you know, do I have permission to, to move on? Yeah. And being prepared to hear the word no. You have to wait here. Because that's what it's it's uh, like a lot of the time, isn't it? Particularly as uh, one's one strength or capacities dwindle, or you, you come into challenges. Will you get through this? You don't know. Rather than feel frustrated or angry or just stopping, waiting, seeing this permission. I find this becomes increasingly the case um, as for one reason or another I uh, seem to be losing it a bit over the years gradually I think my, my memories are not so good as it was faculties aren't so good or a bit so I often find myself forgetting what I'm supposed to be doing <laughs> forgetting details of it and you go just to stop, <laughs> wait <laughs> till it comes back. You know, you can't remember something as an act of will. <laughs> you just have to wait, and if it comes, it comes. It doesn't. It doesn't come. You're thinking, I've known her for twenty years, and I can't remember her name. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> so, recently, I had this uh, occasion coming back from Switzerland, where I'd. Um, you know, booked a flight back from Geneva and the flight had been done through the internet so they sent me this <coughs> receipt and it said um, you know flight from Geneva six six o'clock and arrives Gatwick 7.30 you know so oh great that's not bad oh, 7.30 that's evening puja so 7.30 always means evening puja to me, wherever I am. So I thought, well, oh, great, 7.30. So I, put, right, so I wrote in the diary, gets back 7.30 in the evening, arrives 6 o'clock in the evening. You know. Then I, I got my little diary and thought, okay, that's, that's 1,800, isn't it? 1,800, because they always do like that in airports, the 24-hour system, 1,800, 1,930, 1,800. So get to the airport by, you know, I calculated, so fine. Got to the airport at about five o'clock. Merry 
strode up with great confidence to the ticket office, said, okay, here we are, here's my... They said, have you got any confirmation in this flight? I said, yes, where do my documents go? He said, yes, well, this is six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Your flight left ten hours ago. <laughs> ah. Oh. <laughs> so it was an interesting moment, you know. You can't go forward. <laughs> you can't go back. Geneva Airport, well, it looks like the arms round might be a bit lean. <laughs> can't stand still. So what do you do? Just wait. Okay, just be with that feeling of... of Irritation and confusion and, and self self blame, of course. And uh, you know, you haven't got your bit of plastic. If you have the little bits of plastic, I've got a bit of plastic. I haven't got a little handy mobile phone or anything. So what do you do? You know. And uh, so then, fortunately, um, I was with Ajahn Natiko in this sort of state of hmm. And then this uh, Ajahn Natiko thought, oh dear. Uh, we could try a, a phone call to England and he just thought, oh please we really need some help here maybe whatever benevolent forces there are in the universe, please come and help us and then this man strode up <laughs> it's true <laughs> I said, I know you and it was someone Natiko had met 20 years ago <laughs> skiing instructor 20 years ago and he said would you like to use my mobile phone <laughs> so what's the odds on that <laughs> so we're able to phone through to uh, some lay supporters because of course if you're ever phone chit to us you always get sorry we're not available <laughs> <laughs> We're never available. And now, you know, now you're going to pay for it for not being available. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody, so you don't even bother after a while. I think you forget that. <laughs> but then you recognise, my goodness, if you didn't have lay supporters, where would you be? You know? and so you've got people you can phone immediately. You drop everything and, and uh, make the phone calls and make the connections and help you out and, you know, phone back and wonderful. And suddenly things are moving again. Uh, this is, I think this is really wonderful. You know, I mean, it's disastrous, but it, it's, it's, it's wonderful because you get a sense of, you know, at a level, some level, all of us are going to meet helplessness, aren't we? You know, it can be a time you haven't got a, whatever coin it is needed for the parking meter. It can be a number of things. You know, the washing machine's broken down. We just meet that. What do you meet it with? You know, frustration, anger, kick it, you know, um, trying to beat it into life again, <laughs> or do you just get a sense of, well, you know, your bluff has been called. You're not the Lord of creation. <laughs> you know, you're not the dominator of the planet. You, you have to bow and kneel and pray. Uh, and it's, uh, I found it amazing that uh, quite wonderful that in these, actually, well, truly that happens. Suddenly, something says, okay, here's a, I'm going to rescue you again. Because yeah. this is part of what we live in. 
I, I think uh, you won't, certainly I begin to see the, the sense of much more trust in good karma. Yeah. In a way, we I can't I couldn't explain it exactly, but the goodness of renunciation, the goodness of virtue, the goodness of, of honesty, and uh, things that one tries to cultivate, you know, somehow does seem to have these effects that you find that um, good forces gather around, you live within the sphere of your own goodness, uh, or the goodness that's been generated. So I have an enormous sense of uh, gratitude for that, for being... Uh, encouraged and trained and, and held in a situation that, that uh, causes that to come around. Mm. <coughs> <coughs> mm. So it's a very important reflection, I think, uh, a sense of uh, the cooperative sense. You know. Just, um, and when you think to yourself, you know, what happens if somebody, you know, you get knocked down by a truck tomorrow, who's going to look after you? Yeah? Who's going to help you? Those are the people you should be looking after. <laughs> Those are the people you should be least recollecting and sharing merit with. You know, who's, the per- who's the people you're going to pick up the phone to? Those the, that, you know, when you're in a jam, you know, that's the people you should be looking after. What's the, what's the one you're going to pray to? What's the benevolent force you're going to pray to when, when times are rough? That's the one you need to be taking refuge in. However you figure that, however you see that, that's the one you need to really give honour to at this time because uh, that's the direction, the ultimate direction. And other, other directions come out of that. Hmm. So, this for your reflection. <laughs>